in Jesus's terms, he says, I am the bread of life. I have come down out of heaven. Yes, the manna came from heaven. I came from heaven too. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 54th episode of Working with the Word. I am the bread of life. This is one of Jesus' most famous statements in the Gospel of John, and that's what we're reading and talking about today. We are in John chapter 6. If you're able to, we encourage you to grab a Bible and follow along. We encourage you to read the text through. If you're not familiar with the passage, read it through for yourself first. I want to remind you that reading the Bible is the most important first step of Bible study. It's interesting as we look at John chapter 6 that when you read Jesus' statement, I'm the bread of life, it's very meaningful and comforting and powerful. And yet through the whole story of, of this chapter, this preaching, this declaration of Jesus actually turned most of Jesus' followers away. Why is that? So let's talk about that today. This chapter begins with Jesus performing two new signs. So because we're not going to take the time to read through the text ourselves, it's this chapter 71 verses, let's start with a really quick summary and make a few quick observations about these two signs. What's going on here? Well, what we're calling sign number four is the first time we encounter in this chapter is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. A great group of people are following Jesus. We'll come back to talk about this crowd later on in the chapter and what happens with this crowd, kind of as Emerson's already foreshadowed for us. But as we're looking at this particular sign, there's a great group of people following Jesus and gets to a point of the day, as some of the other Gospels point out, you know, he has compassion on them for the fact that they've been following them and they're probably hungry after listening to Jesus all day and maybe they've been watching him heal people. So he turns to Philip and says, why don't we go get something to eat? And Philip says, we could have, you know, almost a year's worth of wages and that would be enough for all of these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, we call this the feeding of the 5,000, you know, the text lists for us 5,000 men. There's an implication there's probably some women and children there too, so this is the 5,000 plus. And of course, this is really a memorable miracle for the fact that Jesus, with just a small amount of food, a couple of loaves of bread, a couple of fishes, is able to feed this large crowd. And so much that it's not just that everybody barely gets a one bite to eat, but everyone has until they're full, and then there's abundance of food that's left over. I mean, this is miraculous in the fact that Jesus multiplies this food. And I don't think this was just like, okay, Jesus started a good deed, and so Jimmy started and kind of you know, paid it forward, and then Cheryl, she paid it forward too. I think this is Jesus doing miraculous things here in all of this. And it's going to lead to a great moment. And in fact, one of the things that really stands out to me is verse 15. They look to take Jesus and they're going to take him by force to make him king. We're going to come back to that attitude too, of just the the crowd of people. He multiplies all this food for them and they're ready to take Jesus and put him on a throne. But hang on a second, everybody. Let's get back to what they really feel about Jesus was we'll get to the end of this chapter. So that's a very quick synopsis of sign number one there. Uh, What about our second sign that we see after Jesus feeding the 5,000? So sign number five takes place that night, it sounds like, 
when Jesus withdraws, when they're trying to make him king, he goes to the mountain by himself alone. But his disciples go down to the sea and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And as they're going across, the sea begins to be stirred up. There's a strong wind that's blowing and Jesus is not there, remember. And so when they're basically out in the middle of the the sea and Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And what's interesting is that no one else would observe that except those men in the boat. And so at first they're afraid. (laughs) I would be afraid. I think one of the other gospels tells us they thought that they were seeing a ghost and Jesus identifies himself. It is I, do not be afraid. And so they took him into the boat and right then, like immediately, they got to where they were going. And so this is the fifth sign of Jesus that he performs and the other Gospels record a similar sign or this, this very same sign. And it's interesting, again, that this is one of the things that only the disciples themselves would see. And I think that highlights one of the things about the, the fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000. It tells us that, that Jesus was intending to test his disciples to see what they would do. That's why he told Philip, Um, you know, where are we going to go to buy bread for all these people? He wanted to test them. So he knew what he was trying to do. So these two signs are not just for the crowd to see who Jesus is. We're going to talk about that, but it's also for the disciples, for them to see who Jesus is and to help them develop in their faith. So the signs are obviously important. I mean, anytime we're going to especially have a chapter that talks about any of the signs, we're going to remind ourselves of John chapter 20, 30, and 31, that John has made a point to record these seven signs, and here we have two of those seven in one chapter, and that's so that we'll grow in our faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he is the Son of God. I'm saying there are consequences of that, the consequence being that we would have eternal life through that faith that we have in obedience to Jesus, our King. But John spends much more time talking about this discussion that Jesus has with the crowds than on the signs for themselves. I mean, those two signs take up about 20 verses. And again, John's not writing in verse format. He's not like, okay, this is the end of verse 19. Mm -hmm. Here's the beginning of verse 20. But he's obviously spending a lot of time talking about this discussion that Jesus has with the people. And this is really where this discussion like you mentioned in the intro, Emerson, is going to lead to some conflict. Some people are going to not fall away, but are going to, I guess, give up is a way to phrase it, give up on Jesus. And so this is a key moment in Jesus's ministry and in the influence that he has on the crowds and really how they are going to respond to Jesus at this point. We'll talk more about how maybe we interpret this key moment at the end in our so what section, but this is a really big, important moment where Jesus is spending time doing these things and then taking a moment to talk to the people. Yeah, you mentioned how how much how more time is spent in talking about the meaning of the sign and Jesus is teaching after the sign than the sign itself. I think that's really important because Jesus wasn't just a good miracle worker, he was also a great teacher. And the signs themselves were intended to point to a greater reality. And this is something that that we're going to see continually in in John is that the miracles point us to Jesus. And this is just something we've already emphasized over and over again. And the fact that Jesus can multiply this physical bread should tell us something about who he is spiritually. Uh, and he's, he's going to make the claim, I am the bread of life. And it's no accident that he said that the day after he multiplied the bread. And so as these people are coming to him again, 
In verse 22, it says, The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So the very next day, the crowds come back, and they're focused on one thing. They're focused on seeing Jesus again. And so they eventually find him on the other side of the sea. They're kind of rushing to beat him to the other side of the sea. And in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What do you think, what is Jesus saying there? I mean, in a way, he's, he's, he's rebuking them, isn't he? Aren't they doing something that's good? They're, they're seeking him, they're trying to find him, but what is Jesus saying to them? He's just saying that you're hungry. You know, while they were coming to try to take him by force, make him king, it seems more about that he can provide for their physical requirements, which there are implications in that of maybe they're expecting him to provide physically as far as overthrowing Rome or that he's going to do this great physical stuff for them. He's going to, you know, heal all of their sicknesses. He's going to give them all of the health and wealth they could ever want, right? And that's yeah. not what Jesus' focus is all about. His intention is very different from their intention. Yeah, I think you kind of see that whenever they try to make him king. The kind of king that they're wanting to make him is not the kind of king that he came to be. And so he withdrew from that. He's doing the same thing here. They're misunderstanding his purpose. And this is also something that we've seen already in John is that Jesus sees people's hearts. He knew what these people were after their intentions over time are going to become clear. At first, they wanted to make him king. And in just a few verses, they're going to request that Jesus do another sign. It's like, well, didn't didn't you just see yeah. the, the sign multiplying the loaves? Why do you need another sign? And then eventually, at the end of the chapter, they're going to completely walk away from Jesus because they can't stand to listen to him. And so over time, their intentions become clear. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to see compared to a. We've already seen stuff like that. Jesus drives the people out of the temple, and they say, "What sign will you do to show that you have the authority to do something like that?" Where Jesus does signs, and people are saying, "Like, well, what other sign can you?" And it's like, mm-hmm. "What else do you need me to do? I'm yeah. already doing things that are God ty- kind of things." And like you said, a passage we've gone back to there in chapter two of him looking at their hearts and seeing their hearts. And he's really going to be pushing into the point in this lesson here. I mean, we're talking about the fact that the crowds are going to leave him and we don't want to make Jesus the bad guy because he's not, but it's Jesus's fault, I guess is one way to phrase it. I hope that's an appropriate way to phrase that, the fact that the crowds leave, because he's the one who brings up all of these these things. He's really making it obvious before them. You're not following me for the right reasons. If I knew that people weren't following me for the right reasons, but I liked the attention and popularity, I'd keep my mouth shut about it. But Jesus is more than glad to try to get to the point as he is focused on doing his Father's will. I mean, that's another passage or another idea we've seen throughout John's Gospel is Jesus linking himself to the Father and saying, I've just come to do my Father's will. And his Father's will in this moment is not to just please the people and just fill their bellies, his Father's will is for him to proclaim that he is the bread of life, even if that means leading him towards the cross, which I think is ultimately, this is a step in that direction. Yeah, exactly. 
maybe one way we could say it is that from one perspective, what Jesus does in this chapter is a public relations failure from the sense of because of his teaching as a direct result of what he teaches, many of his disciples just stop following him altogether. He loses popularity. But Jesus is not bothered by that because what they're leaving, what they're walking away from, they're walking away from Jesus because they they don't understand and they're not willing to accept what he teaches about himself. So as we kind of unfold the, the conversation that Jesus has with the crowd, he, he wants them to see the bread that he brings to them, not in terms of the flour and the fish that he can provide for them, but in terms of eternal life. He, he tells them in verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. In the conversation that comes after that, there are a lot of parallels to the story of Israel in the book of Exodus, how God Mm -hmm. provided manna for the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness. One of those, the Jews themselves bring out. They say in verse 30 and 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And basically the implication is, Jesus, we want you to do something like this to prove yourself to be another Moses. And so the people recognize there's something of a parallel, but it's not an exact one-to-one parallel. They're thinking in terms of the physical. So one parallel to Exodus is the wonder bread, (laughs) bread that just kind of miraculously appears in Moses. It fell from heaven, no assembly required. All they have to do is just go out and get it. But in Jesus's terms, he says, I am the bread of life. Mm-hmm. I have come down out of heaven. Yes, the manna came from heaven, but he kind of corrects their misunderstanding. You know, they think it was Moses that gave them this bread. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. The father gave you this bread. It came from a heaven. It came from him. And now he's giving you an even greater bread. Jesus came from, I came from heaven too. Mm-hmm. And another parallel to the Exodus story Well, this kind of goes out of the book of Exodus, but into Numbers. Jesus says that the fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died in in verse 49. And he says in verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So Jesus says, you know, if if you really want Moses's bread, it's not going to sustain you, but my bread is going to grant you eternal life. I think the Israelites died in the wilderness, not just because they were living off of physical bread, but because of their unbelief in the book of Numbers. That's really clear. They failed to believe and trust in God, and so they died in the wilderness. And Jesus says, my bread is going to sustain you forever if you believe. And then one more parallel to Exodus is in verse 60 and 61 the people begin complaining and grumbling. The text actually says in verse 61 that they grumbled at this, kind of like what the Jews were doing, the Israelites were doing in the wilderness. They were grumbling about the bread that God was providing for them. And I think the point here is that as Jesus is talking about spiritual bread, they just completely miss the point altogether, that he's talking about something greater. In verse 434, They say, Lord, always give us this bread. And it's reminded me of in chapter 4, verse 15, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. 
she says, give me this water so I don't have to come out here to draw anymore. And Jesus is like, you're, you're missing the point here. And so Jesus really wants them to see who he is and what he has come to do. And so what he says and what I've come to do is I've come so that you can eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> now, if I was in that crowd, I'd also probably be like, um, what? I'm like, yeah. what in the world are you talking about? And maybe on the side of the cross that we are, we look at this and we, you know, think Lord's Supper communion stuff. Emerson, you're the one who brought up this quote. I don't know if you know who to attribute it to. Something about the John 6 isn't about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is about John 6. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Something, something yeah. in that regard. Just in the fact that this isn't specifically about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, but as we take those elements, that does relate to the things that Jesus is talking about here in this chapter. And so obviously, this is a an idea that's tough to stomach in both ways of the meaning there. It's tough to stomach yeah. literally to think about having to eat somebody's flesh and drink their blood, just as well as it's tough to stomach in t- as far as a mental capacity. You know, what's, what's going on here? Obviously, this isn't a literal thing. This is a figurative. But why doesn't Jesus reveal that? Why doesn't Jesus make that known? I'm, I'm not sure to, as far as that. He doesn't clarify that misunderstanding. But he's helping them to see who he really is. He's continuing to go with that statement in verse 35 of the I am the bread of life. And as he's making that distinction of himself, he's running with that metaphor. And like he talked about with the Samaritan woman, like with Nicodemus, they're just completely missing it. And you maybe think about similar to the way Jesus would use parables at times. He's using Mm -hmm. those lessons. It's not that they couldn't understand how seeds work, or like how pulling fish out of a net worked, it's they weren't seeing the spiritual connection or application. And so they're they're completely missing that. So they're completely missing who Jesus is in this section. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's right. The ultimate reason why the crowds take it as literally as they do is because they don't have enough confidence in Jesus himself and belief in him to think about, okay, what does Jesus mean by this? I think that's where the disciples' faith helped them there when Jesus turned to them, and this is not jumping ahead too much, but when Jesus turns to them and says, do you want to walk away too? They recognize that Jesus has words of eternal life. The crowds don't. And so they're going to take Jesus super literally, take his words out of context to take them to mean something that he doesn't intend. He's not talking about cannibalism here. But if Jesus is the bread of life, then what does that mean? That means that we depend upon him for our sustenance and our life, just like we depend on physical food and drink for life. And, you know, that in a way is kind of a scandalous thing, a disgusting thing from a human perspective. I think what Jesus really is trying to highlight is that he's trying to prepare them for his death and show them the kind of king that he came to be, not one that just would provide for them physically or help them revolt against Rome or something. And at the end of verse 51, he says, The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is saying, if you want to accept me as king, then you're going to have to look to me on the cross. He doesn't use that word yet. He doesn't use that term. But 
he's saying that I'm going to die for you. And if you're, if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to accept who I am on my terms and come and follow after me, depend upon my death, my life that I'm going to give for you in order to have life. And he can say all of this to this group of people as he's had their attention and has been, in a sense, gathering a following now for at least a couple of chapters from what John records for us. We mentioned a while ago how it almost seems like these signs somewhat escalate as far as they're they're being made aware to groups of people. The publicity, we could say that. Now, from sign four to sign five, that kind of changes that that ruins the analogy, how sad, John, <laughs> that you completely blew all that out. That's a very, when we say stuff like that, that's a rough idea that these continue to escalate in publicity. You start with the water turned to wine when just the disciples and those few people knew that. Then you go to the royal official's son. Then you go to the paralyzed man who's now speaking to others about it. But here Jesus has this great crowd of people who are following him. He's got them around close to a time where they're about to be going to Jerusalem to celebrate a really big festival. And right around as that time's coming up, Jesus is intentionally doing things. They're going to kind of stir up the crowds and shake up the crowds. And he takes those moments to then deliver hard teaching. Now that means that there's going to be a continual escalation, not just in the publicity of Jesus, but also in the controversy related to Jesus. And it leads up to his we'll see in just a moment, at least to a lot of people leaving Jesus at this point, walking away from him. But even as we'll get into the next chapter, there's a lot of discussion now about who is Jesus? What's this guy all about? Where in chapter two, when he was at that wedding in Cana, there might be people like, oh, there's Mary's son. But now they're saying there's Jesus, that guy who turned those little bit of loaves and fishes into a giant meal. And the guy who healed that paralyzed guy on a Sabbath and who's going to come and he's saying things about how we have to follow him and how he's doing his father's will. And it's really going to continue to escalate the controversy even into the conflict that Jesus is going to have with other people. Yeah, I, th- I thought you bringing up the parables was really helpful here. You know, John doesn't record any of Jesus's parables that we read in the other Gospels, but he does record these kinds of teachings where Jesus takes something figurative to illustrate the point. And I remember reading somewhere that Jesus's parables served a dual purpose. I think Matthew highlights that in Matthew chapter 13. And I remember reading somewhere that illustrated it this way. The same sun that hardens the clay also melts the wax. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus can deliver one parable or one teaching like, I'm the bread of life and you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And one group of people can hear it one way and be hardened against that teaching, and another group can hear the exact same teaching and receive it, maybe not fully understand it. I, I doubt that the Peter and the rest of the apostles fully understood what Jesus is talking about, but they could receive it in faith. And the difference is the heart. What kind of heart? Do you have a heart of clay or a heart of wax that's able to be melted? So speaking of these different responses, we see in Verse 64, Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. This is the first time we get reference to Judas being the one who would betray him in John's gospel, and we'll see that mentioned again before we close today. But Jesus knew from the beginning of chapter 6, when the crowds were there the day before to receive his teaching, and when they came to listen to him and see the signs he was doing about healing their sick and all those other things, 
when he gave them those bread and fish, I mean, I like to imagine that Jesus had a smile on his face and that he knows doing it and he was, you know, bl- you know, blessing people or whatever. But Jesus in his heart also knew same time tomorrow, these people are going to be turning, they're going to be walking away from me. He knew that about these people. It comes to this point and there's a big decision that people make and he knew that these people would be turning away from him. But Jesus didn't want to change that teaching. He didn't say with that foreknowledge of, okay, I know people are going to have a hard time accepting this, so maybe I need to ease up some. He gave what the Father told him he needed to do and say and instruct the people. He's all about doing the Father's will and instructing and doing the Father's will. And so these group of people leave Jesus, verse 66, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. That's why we see this as such a big, pivotal moment. This is a mm-hmm. moment where many of his disciples turn away. And in the next verse, Jesus turns around, and he's going to see John and Peter and Andrew and Bartholomew and Thomas and Judas and the other apostles, and he says, well, guys, what are you going to do? And I, I always like to try to think about one of the lesser talked about apostles. I mean, Peter gets a lot of page time, and so we know about mm-hmm. Peter, so we can easily identify Peter. But if I'm like Bartholomew, I'm just sitting there kind of like dumbfounded and like, oh, I don't know what to do about Like, Jesus just lost a big old crowd of people. What am mm-hmm. I going to do about this? So how does Peter respond to that moment? Well, he, he responds with courage and with faith. He, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There, there's a lot there. He, he looks at the alternative and he says, if we leave you, we, we have no other good alternative. There's no one that can replace you. He recognizes that, that, he, that Jesus has words that are eternal life. I, I think, again, he doesn't, he doesn't understand everything that, that Jesus has said, I, I don't think. Yeah. But he, he actually says what Jesus said, because what Jesus said back in verse 63 is, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And Peter uses that in his own statement, you have words of eternal life. So he takes what he can understand about what Jesus is saying and accepts that. And he's going to use that to build his faith. And then in verse 69, we have believed and come to know that you are who you say you are. They had been with Jesus long enough to know who he was, to see his signs, to see his miracles. And so you see their faith developing along the same lines as the unbelief of the crowds, which is really remarkable. Again, what set these 12 men apart, or I should say 11 men apart, was their conviction of who Jesus was. And their willingness to follow Jesus, even though they didn't fully grasp even the kind of Messiah that they were following, we see that, and when Jesus predicts his death, and they they don't they don't understand that, but yet they're willing to lay it out on the line in order to, to follow what they know about him. Absolutely, and so this chapter ends with kind of a weird final statement by Jesus. Peter makes that great confession, and then Jesus mm-hmm. goes and says, well, isn't one of you a devil? I've chosen the 12 of you, but isn't one of you a devil? And one of you is going to betray me. And Jesus knows who he's talking about. 
And again, John being the not very good suspenseful writer that he isn't, <laughs> Amelia gives it away and tells us, hey, it's Judas. And it's like, well. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, right. And so you know, we have that point. But I really think the so what is that moment before. And it's the the how the crowds deal with all of this teaching that Jesus gives about how he is the source of eternal life. And that's another key theme in, in John's gospel is I'm the source of eternal life. I'm here to do the Father's will. But when Jesus, he's not just looking at his apostles. It's almost, if we can phrase it like this, like he's looking through the page to you and to me. He's looking at us and wants to know where we stand with him. For our so what, I want to continue to use our occasional TV show analogies we use from time to time. Uh, Take this for leave it what you want. John is obviously not writing a TV script drama. He's not, you know, sketching out a TV series or season. But to me, John chapter 6 is like the mid-season finale of a TV show. You've got this really big, big moment happens of some kind, lots of character development, lots of twists, an unfortunate fall, kind of a where are we going to go from here type of thing. Jesus has been making himself more known and has gained quite a following, but with that attention has come plenty of persecution and ridicule as well. So sometimes Jesus has brought that upon himself through the hard teaching or questioning presented to his audience, things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, none of this is to say that Jesus is wrong in any of that. We're simply stating that Jesus is not going to soften his message for his crowds. And while some have come to believe in him, like the apostles, like Nicodemus, like the Samaritans of John 4, the royal official, the paralyzed man of John 5, we've seen people who are coming to faith in Jesus. There are also plenty who are skeptical of Jesus. The Jews, the religious leaders, the crowds here. When we're talking about the Jews a second ago, we're not talking about all Jews. We're talking probably more about that in line with the religious leaders. I want to make sure I make that clear. But as they're looking, we might look at that and say, there are those who are skeptical of Jesus or just there for the show. They're just there for the bread or to watch the guy who's going to turn water to wine or to maybe see the guy who will walk on water or the guy who will multiply loaves and fishes and will do that even again at another time with a smaller crowd but still a pretty big crowd. Mm-hmm. And all of that, this would be difficult to see Jesus discouraged as so many people leave him. I and mean, think about this moment in the plot, if we're looking at this as a story, maybe we didn't know the outcome. But what a what a hard hit for Jesus and his popularity. But we have to remember that's not what Jesus is all about, is the popularity. His disciples, though, are going to show great faith, and they're here to stay. Now, his disciples will have a, a rough time here in chapters 18 and 19 and 20, just as much as everybody else does. But at this moment, they're showing a great faith, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to help them move through chapters 18, 19, and 20, and even beyond into the book of Acts and what they need to do. They needed this moment in order for themselves to grow character-wise. So the question is, where does that lead us the rest of the season, as we're talking about? You know, the rest of the book of John or the story of John, what's going to happen in the rest of the season? More controversy is ahead and conflict with the Jews, but there's also more connection and closer relationships with the disciples. Even though kind of one of the greatest, you know, this is my post-credit scene of this mid-season finale, is you've got Judas, but there's some type of eerie music that's playing, or there's something that you can tell even just from that of, like, something's up with this guy, and mm-hmm. something's going to happen with him. Again, John's not writing a TV script, and so that's not really what we're doing with all of that. But here's the big, so what? Where are you 
with Jesus at this point in the story? Where are you? Are you convinced he's the son of God? Are you listening with him and saying, as I'm thinking about maybe the other alternatives of I can go to the world, I can go to the culture or the community I live within and let them guide my life, but they don't have the words of eternal life like you do. Are you skeptical and kind of unsure? Are you thinking, I really like Jesus for all the benefits he has, but I don't know if I want to stick around for all the hard things he has to say. Or maybe you just don't really like this idea of running your life at all, and you don't want Jesus to be in charge of anything. That's the question, though. Where are we right now in that as we're looking to cultivate that faith? Where are we standing with Jesus, and where are we with Jesus in this point of the story? And if you want a a challenge, like an action item for this, take Jeff's question that comes from Jesus's question in verse 67. Take that question, where are you with Jesus at this point in the story? And just write out your answer to that. This is a time for a faith check. I think that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples kind of mid-season, midpoint. Let's have a faith check. Let's think about where we are in our relationship with Jesus. Thank you for listening to Working with the Word today. Next week, we'll be in John 7 as the controversy and conflict between Jesus and the Jews continues to escalate. Get used to hearing that a lot for the next few weeks. We're going to see more and more of escalation as far as controversy and conflict. A big theme throughout this chapter is going to be people trying to figure out Jesus. There are headings in Bibles that say things like the identity of the Messiah or people divided over Jesus. There's a debate over Jesus' claims. They're becoming more and more common. And certainly, the text is going to back all of that up. So what are the crawls mulling over about Jesus? And more importantly, we'll continue to meditate upon what we think about Jesus. Keep reading and keep studying to know Jesus better. If you've been enjoying the program, you can help us out by leaving a, a rate or a review on the show on your podcast platform that you listen to, and you can share it with your friends. Remember, if you have a difficult passage, a book of the Bible you'd like for us to cover, or a Bible study question of any kind, reach out to us on Facebook at Working With The Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.